It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 252, The Roman Civil War, The Rise of Herod, and the Assassination of Caesar. After Caesar crosses the Rubicon, panic overcomes Rome. With only one legion, Caesar marches to Rome. Pompey and the old, staunch Republicans flee Rome. They didn't expect him to march on Rome itself, and a civil war erupts. Caesar puts his allies in charge of the Senate, and he pursues his enemies. He defeats a contingent of his enemies in Spain, and he goes to Greece to take on Pompey and the rest of the Republicans. Caesar does something different, though, at this stage. He offers clemency or mercy to all of his enemies. All who want to join him are considered forgiven and a friend of Rome. Caesar the Merciful, a novel concept for Rome. Mark is an interesting character. One of his desires is to have a chariot and ride it through the streets of Rome pulled by lions. Often Caesar leaves him in charge, though he's not the best administrator. As Caesar crosses the Adriatic, Mark is left in charge in Rome. Though Pompey owns the seas, Caesar makes his way across the Adriatic, but he only makes it with part of his army as he is cut off by Pompey's fleet. Caesar is nearly defeated at Diacrium, but he goes on to take on the Republicans at the Battle of Pharsalus in western Greece. Military historians like to point out the extensive preparations and the wall fortifications, and the, but at the same time, the true shortness of this battle. In the battle, Caesar was outnumbered two to one. Pompey's cavalry attacks first, but they're routed when Caesar's men put long spears in the face of the cavalrymen. Caesar also hides his most experienced troops, and he flanks Pompey with them. The Republican leaders fled, and some to Egypt, others to North Africa, while Pompey actually flees to Egypt. Caesar then pursues Pompey to Egypt, and in typical Caesar fashion, he doesn't travel with his whole army, and he goes ahead, and he ends up in a real mess in Egypt. And, you know, he has so few troops with him when he arrives in Egypt that he's going to find himself in trouble. And upon arriving in Egypt, he is presented with Pompey's severed head and a sealed ring. Caesar receives Pompey's severed head and sealed ring in tears. Then he puts to death the assassin who thought they could court his favor. It's kind of like at the time of David all over again. Then the pharaoh of Egypt, a very young boy in his court, brings Caesar into Egypt and Alexandria. And, And most likely the pharaoh was actually behind this. So, you know, Pompey actually went to Egypt to, to find, to be a refugee. Um, and instead, you know, the Egyptians don't want a part of this civil war. They don't want to confront Caesar. So they actually behead Pompey, give, you know, the body to Caesar to try to court his favor. That's not what you do. You know, Romans were still loyal to Romans, so they're going to kill each they ki- They're killing each other in the civil war. But Caesar wanted to grant him mercy, and he wasn't able to. Well, Caesar goes with the Pharaoh into Egypt, into Alexandria, with his miserably small force. 
And he ends up in the palace next to the Library of Alexandria. And you can listen to you know, more of this account in the Septuagint episode and, and learn what happens next. But I, I can't skip it completely for a reason because the character who comes to save Caesar, Cleopatra sneaks into the palace, kind of rolled up in a rug, as the young boy Pharaoh and his administrators decide that you know, Caesar is not going to cooperate with them He's kind of bullying them around, and they're going to actually besiege Caesar in this palace building, and they basically want to kill him. Well, Caesar and Cleopatra fend them off, and most likely a fire breaks out and destroys half the palace and, unfortunately, the adjacent library of Alexandria, which we covered in the Septuagint episode. Caesar calls for reinforcements, and surprisingly, his legions don't come across the seas, but instead they actually arrive from a very unlikely place. And one of the units to first arrive actually comes from Judah. Herod, who was the chief administrator to the king Hyrcanus, had been assembling a defense force, more like hired guns for tax collection and rebellion squashing. And it's a pretty decent sized force at 3,000 armed men. These men, Herod uses as kind of a swift response force and they go to Alexandria to help save Caesar. And Caesar's going to grant Herod incredible favor, and he's not going to give credit to King Hyrcanus, but instead his able administrator. So it's not the 10th legion that arrives, or the 13th legion, but it's Herod, the chief administrator in the kingdom of Judah, shows up to save Caesar. And imagine Caesar's joy and the rewards that he's going to bestow on the man who saved him. And when more reinforcements arrive for Caesar, he goes on the offensive, and he defeats the pharaoh, props up Cleopatra as the head of Egypt. And Caesar would keep Cleopatra as his girlfriend. I don't know what you call their relationship, but he couldn't marry her in the eyes of Rome. And supposedly they would actually have a child named Caesarea. Caesar would spend a little too much time in Egypt, though. His enemies were rallying in other parts of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not yet his, and he was enjoying the comforts of Egypt too much. This may eventually kill Mark Antony, but Caesar was another caliber. Let's talk about Herod Antipater. Herod continues to grow in influence under King Hyrcanus, and he grows in reputation with the Romans greatly after this event. And Herod has four sons, Phasiel, Herod, Joseph, and Pharaohus, and a daughter named Salome. For Herod's support of Caesar and his demonstrations of valor, Caesar elevated Antipater to Roman citizenry, freed him from taxes, and showered him with honors and declarations of friendship. And this will greatly help his career, and especially one of his sons. And this elevation would allow Jews a special degree of protection and freedom to govern themselves and even Rome's goodwill. Josephus notes that these newfound rights and honors, Antipater immediately began to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that Pompey had destroyed. After Caesar's time in Egypt, he goes on the offensive. Um, he defeats the kingdom of Pontus. He defeats the Republican army in Africa at Ruspinina, where Cato commits suicide. He pursues Pompey's sons to Spain, where he defeats them in the Battle of Manda. And during this time, Caesar was elected to his third and fourth terms as consul in 46 B.C. and 45 B.C. 
Um, but in the 45 BC time period, they didn't actually give them that second colleague. Normally there's always two consuls. In this, this next consulship, he was the only consul. And on Caesar's return to Italy in September 45 BC, he filed his will naming his grandnephew Gaius Octavius as his principal heir. Caesar had no child, or at least he couldn't give his inheritance to the Egyptian child, Caesarea. So what happens next does show his true brilliance off the battlefield. A series of acts leave a true legacy. And here's what he accomplished. Here's just a, a kind of a brief list of them. He ordered a census to be taken, which forced a reduction in the grain dole tax. He passed a sumptuary law that restricted the purchase of certain luxuries. He passed term limit laws for governors. He did debt restructuring. And most importantly, though, was his reform of the calendar. The Roman calendar at the time was regulated by the move, movement of the moon. And he reformed the calendar, and he set the length of a year to 365 and a half days by adding an intercalendary leap day at the end of February every fourth year. To bring the calendar into alignment with the seasons, he decreed that the three extra months be inserted into 46 BC. Thus, the Julian calendar opened up on the 1st of January, 45 BC. He established a police force, appointed officials to carry out land reforms. He ordered the rebuilding of Carthage and Corinth. And he extended Latin rites throughout the Roman world. And he abolished the tax system and reverted to the earlier version that allowed cities to collect tribute however they wanted. Next, he had plans for an unprecedented temple to Mars, a huge theater, and a library on the scale of the Library of Alexandria. And then he started to build up the army because he wanted to take war to the Parthians who had destroyed Roman armies years before at the Battle of Cary. Next, the Senate started to give him more titles. They named him Censor for Life, the father of the fatherland. The month of Quintilius was renamed July in his honor. Coins were issued in his name. He was given a golden chair in the Senate. He was allowed to wear a triumphant dress wherever he chose. And he was offered a form of semi-official or popular cult with Mark Antony as its priest. And maybe this is where he allowed himself to be labeled a god, where his worship, self-worship, started. A horrid principality in the making, the cult of Caesar. Probably started innocent enough with the power trip and a hideous ego and turned into some mad craze later with later emperors. In February 44 BC, it was appointed dictator in perpetuity. Under Caesar, a significant amount of authority was vested in his lieutenants, possibly because Caesar was frequently out of Italy. He was preparing for his war with the Parthians, and he was transforming the government uh, to operate while he was on campaign. In effect, he was removing the rights of the Republic, and he placed the government under his own control. The Roman Republic wasn't dead, but he took Sola's control to a new level. He showed how one could control with the support of the people and military and prove successful over all aspects of Rome. Trust me, his grandnephew was watching. And what happens next makes the Julius Caesar story even more interesting. On the Ides of March, 
Caesar appeared in the Senate. And this would be the, you know, the early days of March. Despite many warnings, he went to the Senate anyways, and he was assassinated by a host of senators in the Senate chamber, surrounded by knife-wielding senators who hated his agenda and management of the Republic. And he would die after having 23 knife wounds. Caesar's body was cremated, and on the site of his cremation, the Temple of Caesar was erected a few, few years later. Upon his cremation, a riot breaks out in the city, and the murderers are hunted down. Mark Antony rises up and pleads with the populace for order and justice. And if you want all the drama, Shakespeare did a play on it called Julius Caesar. It's not perfect, but it tells a, you know, tells a perspective. Caesar's will is read, naming Octavian the heir, and large donations of his estate are given to the public. And two years later, he would be deified in the Roman Senate. On January 1st, 42 BC, the appearance of a comet during the games in his honor was taken as a confirmation of his divinity. Both Octavian and Mark Antony promoted the cult of Divius Julius. After the death of Caesar, Octavian, as the adopted son of Caesar, would assume the title of Divifilius, son of God. Octavian would assume the title son of God. We in this episode, with the rounding out of this account, and the, the world now has a, a crumbling Roman Republic. The blueprint established by Solit has been given to the next generation, who's taken it to levels, you know, where the Roman Republic is almost in name only, and, and there's actually an heir to the, to the man who virtually destroyed it and he's worshipped as a god the world now has a son of god Octavian will be claiming himself son of god it's an antichrist of sorts he's loose upon the earth and maybe the devil knows something's about to happen in the spirit maybe the revelations of Anna and Simeon were known and a whisper is being hushed all over Israel of a coming king of Israel Unfortunately, the cultural understanding is that this king will be a military hero who will save Israel from the Romans, one who overthrows the Romans. While Simeon and Anna are praying for the return of the Messiah and the Son of God, who's this usurper of a king, an overthrower of the government by the people who calls himself a god, and his grandnephew, an heir who calls himself the Son of God? In every generation, there is an Antichrist, of sorts, rising up of one who counterfeits the real thing. It's here, right here in Rome, right now. The Son of God, a demonic version, manifested in the flesh. Octavian, the quiet, thoughtful, wise grandnephew of the great man Caesar, sits on the seat of Rome, labeled the Son of God. A demigod in his own right, a manipulator of manipulators, waits in the wings to seize power. The one who ends this republican experiment Caesar loved the foundations and success of Rome and its traditions. He didn't want to destroy it completely. He just wanted to control it. The one who comes after him could care less. The one who comes after him is a Roman stuck on power. And all he has to do is remove old soldiers like Mark Antony and others from the equation. 
Meanwhile, back in Judah, there's a baby born in Israel, most likely in Bethlehem, and his name is Jacob. This Jacob, according to the genealogy of Matthew, will have a son named Joseph 20 years later, who will receive a vision from an angel 20 years after that, that his son will be born of the Most High. The son will not be conceived through him, but of the Holy Spirit. The son of God will come not as a king and raging lion, but as a spotless and blameless lamb to take away the sins of the world. The very opposite of what this Rome world stands for, pride and arrogance and ambition, and the desires of so many to be the first man in Rome. It's just so Jesus that he would say the first would be last and the last would be first. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. And Jesus would tell Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. If it was not for my father, he would not have this power. And later, it was for this very purpose that he was sent into the world to set the captive free and to loose man from injustice. Our story is unfolding with the near end of the Republic and the rise of Herod and the sound of whispers in Israel of a coming king. In the next episode, the Parthians invade Israel and take Jerusalem. Herod flees, and Octavian and Mark Antony fight over the Roman world. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.